I'm Cameron DeVazier. And I'm Mark Howard. And this is Talking Points. We are on the 12th lesson of our first quarter in 2021, covering the book of Isaiah. And I don't know, you, you Pastor Howard, but it's, it's a little bit shocking how quickly 2021 is passing by. Seriously. And, and we're, uh, things like a lot of things are clicking now, a lot of the world is opening back up, and we're just moving on through these lessons. And we're coming to close to the conclusion here of our study of the book of Isaiah. But some very important themes this week that are touched on in several chapters from the book of Isaiah. Right. Uh, this is, the title is Desire of Nations, and essentially it's looking at the, the, uh, the glory and the character of Christ, specifically in his own ministry and through his people to reach all the ends of the earth. So there's going to be a lot about righteous by faith and the mission of the church and the ministry of Jesus. So we've got a lot to dive into today before Absolutely. we get into it. But before we get started, can you give us a word of Let's prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you've given us your word and revealed yourself in its pages. We pray that your Holy Spirit now, the Spirit of truth, would guide us into the truth of your word, give us understanding in these things, not only in an intellectual, but a practical way, uh, as well as for all of our viewers, whether they be teachers or just students, Lord. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, anyway, as we mentioned... I shouldn't say just students, because... <laughs> it makes it sound like, you know... It's almost gonna, pejorative. We better all be students. Yes, and we're going to be learning eternally, so there's nothing wrong right. with learning at the feet of Jesus, for sure. Um, but anyway, we're talking about this um, message or the light of Christ's righteousness that, of course, he exhibited in his own ministry, and then we're supposed to reflect to the world. Right. Very important themes. The well, chapter, a lot of that comes in chapters 60 and 61. Right. But then it begins, it's predicated on chapter 59. Exactly. So essentially, there's three chapters we're covering, 59, 60, and 61, and all the lessons. And what was challenging in putting this one together is each of those is rich with like <laughs> right. a lot of meaning and stuff. So we're just going to, we can't cover it exhaustively, but there's important themes to pick up on. Well, we were talking about how Isaiah has a lot of passages that you know as memory verses and yes. little bits, of, and they're scattered all throughout. But when you get to 59, 60, and 61, it seems like there's more of them. <laughs> it's a really compacted, uh, condensed stuff. So well, we're going to do our best. We're going to do our best to suss it out here, to flesh it out. So talking point number one this week is the simple assertion that sin separates us from God. And it's a great point. It's an important point. It is an important point. And we draw that point from the lesson study, primarily from Sunday's lesson. There's an entire lesson in, in, devoted to the effects of sin, and we're going to dive yes. into that in a little bit. So talking point number two, then, uh, now from the next day's lesson, Monday, is Jesus gives pardon for sin and power over sin. Mm -hmm. So we found both pardon and power in Jesus, and that's our talking point number two. And finally, talking point number three is that we must proclaim the truth. That the mission Amen. of the church is actually to continue to spread this light of the knowledge of the glory of God until yes. the whole world has been lightened. And so we have a work to do in revealing that Fantastic. Gracious. All right. Now, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 59. As you mentioned, it's easy to, tempt, to jump into 60 and 61 because there it's talking about the light shining and, you know, Jesus was that light. But sure. there's a problem in Isaiah 59. Why don't you read verses 1 and 2? What's going on here? Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Mm. Now, you hear a lot these days about... Uh, our connection with God, our religious experience being termed 
a relationship. Yes. And there's a lot of validity there. Of course there is. Sure. And so... But then there's the chicken and the egg <laughs> argument that Well, exactly. And, the, and then we get so sometimes steeped in the relationship motif that we think that the only big problem is this almost hard to define but big problematic break in the relationship. There's a distancing. There's a coldness. Yes. There's a separation from God. And that I've even heard well, expressed that the separation from God, whatever that is, led us to sin. Yes. When the reality is these passages seem to be indicating exactly the opposite, that everything was good until we sinned well, and the that idea, broke the relationship. Well, the idea, some of the idea behind it is, first of all, that it's, the, it's which came first, separation or sin. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, relationship theology says that sin equals separation. It is separation from mm. God. And the reason and conclusion drawn from that is if, if sin is, is, is transgression, mm -hmm. if sin is acts of rebellion, then our focus will naturally be, if we want to get away from sin, on, on, on focusing on our works. Mm -hmm. That's the conclusion. Right. Whereas if we understand that sin is a broken relationship, then, we're just then we focus the on the relationship, which sounds beautiful. Mm -hmm. Only, what broke the relationship, and how do you restore it? You know, you think in right. terms of a marriage. If I'm if I'm hitting the bottle hard, if I'm an alcoholic and it's destroyed my marriage, if I want to fix my relationship, I can't do it without addressing behavior. Yeah. And so there's this separation of behavior and relationship and you can talk about emphasis but you can never separate the two in a real relationship and right. that's where a, well and again it's a Isaiah false dichotomy exactly and Isaiah 59 makes it clear but verse 2 your iniquities have separated you from God so it's yes, the it's not that God doesn't want a relationship he built us for a relationship but there's been a disconnect and that disconnect came when we chose to sin right that's right and so in Genesis chapter 3 I put that as in the notes here that this is the of course the quintessential you know Adam and Eve the in the very beginning man. had a great relationship with God until something happened that's and right. that was their sin and so when Jesus and uh, finds them in the garden in the cool of the day you find this starting in verse 8 they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day they, Adam and Eve's wife, were hiding from the Lord God. And he asks, did you, essentially, did you sin? Did you, just, where are you? Right. What happened to the relationship? You sinned, didn't you? That's right. right. And it was the sin that broke the relationship. You see that in Genesis, and that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. That's exactly right. So, um, in the quarterly, I thought this was fascinating too. In the bottom of Sunday. And, and so you have in the notes, sin was the cause of our broken relationship, not the result. Exactly. And what I mean by that is sin was the thing that broke the relationship. It's not um, the sin is the result of some mysterious, ill-defined, right. broken relationship tension or, 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 or separation. That It's not like we drifted away and then sin entered in. Well, again, it's I've even heard in, in the description sometimes, it's like, well, Adam and Eve, but, but the thing is there was something in their heart first. There's right. this, in the heart doesn't mean it's still not sin. And I, again, right. take it back to the marriage. You could say, you know, when when does the relationship with my wife break down if I commit adultery? Well, I didn't start anything. It was it was in my mind. It was still sin. Right. That's what words, Jesus was able to say. The act <laughs> is what distanced itself. Right. And, and the act starts the here, you know, the yes. whole thing. It's a ch and, and it goes back to personal choice. Exactly. And we're going to see that. Anyway, so in, in the bottom of that Sunday lesson, I wanted to highlight the fourth yes. paragraph there. Um, why don't you read the fourth paragraph? Can you please? Sin is primarily rejection of God, a turning away from him. The sin act actually feeds upon itself in that not only is the act a turning away from God, but also the result of the act causes the sinner to turn away even more from the Lord. Mm. 
Sin separates us from God, not because God wouldn't reach out to the sinner. Indeed, the whole Bible is almost nothing but the account of God's reaching out to save sinners. But because sin causes us to reject his divine overtures to us, that is why it is so important that we tolerate no sin in our lives. Mm. And that's where we're going to have a transition to our second talking point here, is that once we establish the sin problem is our choice to disobey and thus separate ourselves from God, as Isaiah 59 points out, well, now what do we do about this? And they end Sunday's lesson with that. That is why it is so important we tolerate no sin in our lives, because if we continue in that sin, that separation is only going to go farther and deeper and ultimately... Well, like the unpardonable sin, it'll be irreparable. It can't be, we won't want it anymore. That's right. So when we, in theology, we use the term atonement, at one right? Yes. There's an atonement that's taking place. Right. And the imp- implication, again, I've used that, you've heard it put as at one There are two parties that are now estranged from each other. Mm-hmm. And the Bible says in Isaiah 59 that sin is what separates us. So if you're going to have at one and those two parties that are going to come back together, right. the thing in the middle has to be removed. you got to deal with that. That's right. So that's, so that's where we're going When we going talk now. about getting rid of sin, it's not a, it's not a, I'm going to live so perfect, yada, yada, yada. It's that thing that is separating me from God. Those acts, those choices, that rebellion, whatever else, has to come out if the two parties are ever going to be reunited. So true. Now, when we, when you get into Monday's lesson, I would encourage you to turn there next, right? It's the next day after Sunday. It makes sense. They start talking about the how to deal with this sin problem, right? What is the solution? Yes. And one of the challenges I had was in this week's lesson, you know, obviously it only takes one day to say exactly what Isaiah 59 there, right. sin separates, separates from God, got to deal with sin. No problem. Right. Then you get into what you do about sin, and that's almost the entire, it could be the rest of the lesson and a lot more, but it's all relegated into one day's study. Diatribe. And so you've got, <laughs> in this one day's lesson, you talk about, we talk about themes that would be known as justification and sanctification and, of course, uh, uh, the relationship of faith and faith works. works yeah. All this stuff is in just a few paragraphs. So it's it's really dense. It's really dense. And so that's going to be a challenge. And that's frustration number one. Mm-hmm. Okay? Frustration number two. Yeah, like we could have taken a whole quarter on those. Exactly. Things. This is an entire quarter. Right. Exactly. So there's a lot to pack in here. Okay. Now, and then it... Now, I'll, I'll be transparent here. Pastor Howard and I had a pre-filming discussion about yes. this. And one of, the, one of the shortcomings, perhaps, in my character is that I get sometimes too easily frustrated. And I had some frustrations with this particular day's lesson, not because I saw anything that was inherently, like, theological error right. or something was drockingly wrong, but there were some implications about the audience that were a little... Uh, a little played out in my book. And, and the sense is, for instance, in paragraph two, you find this statement, redemption, therefore, cannot be based on lack of sin. It must be based on forgiveness. Well, of course that's true. Well, the only people who need redemption are sinners. So nobody standing in the need of redemption is without sin. Well, so, the, implica- the implication there, and, and part of what we challenge, we're challenged with is, the author finishes, or the contributor finishes the lesson up on Sunday saying we need to tolerate no sin in our lives. And there's this, there's this, we live in the world of caveats. We've talked about this before. You you can never talk about overcoming sin without saying, no, we're not saved by, and we're not, and so there's basically a whole day saying, now now don't misunderstand me, we shouldn't tolerate sin, but we're not saved by being so holy. And so these kind of statements are, all these things are throwing in, give a 
a hint of um, that we actually think we're being saved by how good we are. Well, and I put in the margin. Like this is an epidemic in our exactly. church. Exactly. I put in the margin of my study notes that, that there seem to be two basic assumptions being uh, uh, written from the perspective of here. Number one is that there is an absolute pandemic of legalism. Yeah. That the church is just rife with people who are trying so diligently to Evans, earn their way. Evans, they're just, just working so nothing. hard to miss no church service and right. to We're not do any unholy thing. detailed is, legalistic, yes. you know, in the fine print. And I'm sorry. I can tell for, you as a pastor, that's not the reality of the masses I look around the churches of the and stuff, and, and it is not like our number one problem is people trying, trying to be over so hard. too much obedience, right? And then number two, the, the extension of that is that because legalism is such a problem, we must view effort as almost evil. Like you don't yes. want to work too hard. So we're all trying to be too good, but don't yeah. be don't work too hard. And, and, and let me just interject. And, 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 and those are valid concerns, but I don't know if it's for this audience. But let me interject anyway. that, that part of that is legalism is being and has been for now decades in our church um, taught or understood as being extra careful. In other words, if you're careful in your obedience, you must be a legalist. Well, I'll tell you, nobody was more careful in their obedience than Jesus was, and he was mm. the furthest thing from a legalist. And it's funny, I, I think back to a, a story where I, I remember a woman who was a newly baptized in the church, and it was years ago before I was in pastoral ministry, and some church members had been talking with her about, you know, don't, uh, not being too legalistic. Mm -hmm. And she had been faced for the first time with returning a faithful tithe, but she was worried that if she returned 10%, it would be too particular. So, and I'm not joking, she came up with a conclusion, maybe with the help of friends, maybe on her own, but just not trying to be legalistic, that she would do 8% instead of 10% just so as not to be legalistic. Leave a little something as for grace to if, cover. <laughs> as if legalism is doing what God says. And so, mm. That's not, legalism has to do with motive mm. and not with action. And the reality is the true legalist will never be as particular as the, like even the Pharisees would say they were particular, not in everything. You tied the anise and the mint and the cumin, but you avoid the weightier matters of the law, right? right? They weren't particular in everything, only in some things. Mm. A faithful Christian is particular in all things because their motivation is true. Mm. So, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we... I mean, you think of... Okay, yeah. go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say, because the implication is there's legalists who are over there working their way, and so anything that's not working your way has to be the right thing. So, that's right. So, those over there on that side uh, of the spectrum are all trying to work their way, and that is bad. So, the implication, without saying it, is that, so just do a little less works, and that'll right. be good. And the... But relax your stance a little bit. And right. So people who are trying to oh, keep the Sabbath and dress a certain way and not watch certain and things or listen to, to certain like, things. If it's health reform or dress yes. reform, any of those like really cutting things, that's, that's where all, legalism that's really... Legalism. Right. But to just chill and lean back and say, I don't, I don't worry about how I dress and what I listen to and what I watch, that's not legalism. But the reality is the devil has done a, pulled a fast one on us because, again, legalism is about motive mm. and, and it's about um, what I need to do to get into heaven. And all he's done is lowered in our minds. So we say, I used to think you had to do this and this and this to get into heaven. But now I realize all you got to do is love people, be nice to them, go help the community and do that. Guess what? 
I've just changed still one. A list. I've yeah. traded one checklist for another, but I'm still checking a checklist. Mm. So the real issue of legalism isn't the right versus left or the conservative versus liberal. The issue is really a matter of the heart. What motivates and you? Where's your motivation, right? And that's And if love for Christ is motivating, it's never legalism. Right, but it will be strict obedience. That's right. That's what it, it, but it will it will be because strict obedience. Because you want obedience. to please him. That's right. So strict obedience is not legalism. No. Legalism is trying to do anything by my own merits to get into heaven, whether that list is long or short. So that strict obedience kind of forms a foundation for wrong think all the way through this. Exactly. That's kind of where we're going there. So uh, let's look in, well, there's a statement in the Desire of Ages. Maybe we should bring this up now. Yeah. And it's in, uh, I think it's, uh, what page was that on? 762, 762, I believe. Well, Ellen White in Desire of Ages, it is finished chapter, and she talks about how before the cross, the devil's deception was that God could not be just and merciful. Yes. That justice destroyed mercy, and because God required strict obedience to his law, which he does, he couldn't be forgiven. There's no way he could be flexible. And that, that misunderstanding that he couldn't be just and merciful led the Pharisees to be so rigid on their... Mm-hmm. Outward obedience, it, yes. which led to our, our our view of legalism, but it's not the only brand of it. What's fascinating is, for ever since to this day, we say, "Well, oh, that's legalism." It's like the it's just like the Pharisees in Christ's day. But Ellen White's clear that that is not going to be the primary manifestation in the last days. She says, after the cross, she says another deception was now to be brought forward. Mm. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice, not justice destroyed mercy before, but mercy, now listen how she describes it, that mercy destroyed justice, that the death of Christ abrogated or changed the Father's law. Okay. And then she goes on to say that wasn't possible. But the point is that the new deception is not, you got to be so strict. The new deception is, don't worry about being so strict. We don't have to worry about, because Mm -hmm. the mercy saves us. And she finishes the paragraph by saying, let's close the paragraph, yeah. By saying, here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Mm. So she's very clear that the legalism that we read about in the Pharisees in Christ's day is not the primary manifestation in our day. Well, it's is this... it possible that we are addressing a lot of our talk of legalism to an audience that's been gone for 2,000 years, and we're, we're dealing with New Testament legalism? What was it C.S. <laughs> Lewis described it as? Taking a... a, a, a um, trying to fight a flood with a fire hose? Yeah. You know, like... Oh, we're going to come with the fire hose to put the... It's a flood. You don't need a fire hose. Like, right. you're fighting the wrong thing with the wrong exactly. thing. Exactly. So we assume we got a church full of Pharisees when reality is Satan's deception... They're a different kind. Exactly. Well, Satan's, Sadducees. Well, exactly. Satan's deception in these last days is not that God is so just, is that he's so merciful. They don't even need to do anything. So anyway, that's, a, that's an important point we need to bring up. The mm. other thing is that the corollary to that, the extension of it, is that, you know, there's the statement at the bottom of, again, still Monday's lesson where it says, works are an outward expression, comma, the human manifestation of a saving faith. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that sentence, but again, it could imply that works are just, again, a thing we throw on on top of a saving relationship with Jesus. So this, this nebulous relationship saving thing. And God's works. doing some legal thing in heaven on paper. Right. And, and then so down here, to, whatever we do so, is on our own. Exactly. And so works are good and all, but don't for a moment think that it has anything to do with salvation or something along those lines when the reality is, I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul, when he would talk about... And and let's just be clear that we're not saying that that's what the 
author of the lesson no. saying, but it can come across that way, and I've heard and, discussions in our Sabbath school classes on these kinds and of things. With, as it is, I guarantee you there's going to be Sabbath school after Sabbath school, <laughs> you know, scores of Sabbath schools are going to interpret it and say, therefore, yeah. friends, don't obey the law yeah. too close, you know, don't and don't try to try too doing, hard. Just, right. right. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Um, this is Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 3 and 4. He says, for consider him, that is, consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against what? Sin. Sin. That there is, as we consider Christ, as we look to him as our perfect example, we should not we should not have the attitudes like, oh, I'm so glad he did it, so I don't have to. I, I think of <laughs> Romans six where Paul says, How can we who died to sin live any longer therein? Right. So that, that I, so as we look to Jesus, the, the, the lesson we learn from Jesus is not thank goodness I don't have to now. Right. It's now it's thank goodness I can That's in right. his strength. That's that we right. should not become discouraged. That striving against sin is part of the Christian experience and it's exactly what we need to build character. That's you right. Know, it's important. And, and we it, we don't strive alone, as we had talked about before the lesson, you know, where it says works are an outward expression. The human manifestation is not just human because Paul says in, in Philippians 2, it is right. God who works in us both right. to will and to do. We are his workmanship, it says in Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Right. So the whole idea is, you know, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. All exactly. of these things are saying that we are new creatures in Christ, yes. that the works are not just human. They're a result of us yeah. being dead to this sin and Christ living within. new life living within me springs out. Christ in you, yeah. the hope of glory. So and the list goes on. I want to bring out a statement from the Great Controversy, because our, our time is ticking away, but in Great Controversy, page 425, we read mm -hmm. this statement. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort... Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people on the earth. And friends, as we know, we are living in the hour of his judgment. We've been preaching this for over, well over 100 years, and it's been true every time we've said it, that we are living in the anti-typical day of atonement, when That's the right. high priest is doing that work. So while he is up working on our behalf, he is empowering and encouraging and That's inspecting right. and, and giving us all that we need so that not only can we have forgiveness of sin, but we can have the victory over sin. That in Christ, as our talking point says, we find our pardon, yes, for sin, but also our power over sin. That God not only has this hope that we'll do it, but he's already given us everything we need to do it. And anyway, it's a powerful promise that we sometimes... Well, a lot of people have tripped over this statement through the grace of God and their own diligent effort. It's like, well, that's, that's God... Half God, half me. Right, yeah. that's God, that's faith plus something else. No, all Ellen White is saying here is the same thing Peter says when he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, giving all diligence, she says their own diligent effort, mm -hmm. add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, mm -hmm. etc., etc. She's basically just saying the grace of God can't do anything without our own choice. Mm -hmm. And the diligent effort means we should be putting more energy into 
making our calling and election sure than we should all the other things that take up our time. Well, it's the same thing, again, that we already mentioned in Philippians 2, where he talks about how we need to work out our own salvation, right. for it is God, Christ, who works in you, right? So we're working it out through the power that God gives us, right. and he's saying, I'm giving you something as a gift, forgiveness. Our effort doesn't save yeah. us, but we're not going to be saved without putting forth effort Amen. toward the spiritual life. So again, we're not advocating that we need a works righteousness and that effort is salvific in itself, that we're going to pull ourselves. Of course not. But we certainly don't want to make, we also want to argue against the other implication that can sometimes be brought out is that everything was done. So you just sit back, relax, don't do a thing. You're going to coast on it. And no, no, no. Christ says, get up and work because I've given you strength. You know how you know what area of, of, of something in their life a person values? by how much effort they put toward it. Mm. And so it's ironic that we come to Christianity and don't put effort there. We, you put, we put effort into the things that matter the most. Mm. If there's any effort we ought to be putting anywhere, it ought to be in our ex experience and relationship with Christ. That's so true. Well, anyway, there's all of that. And that was just, we got our Monday's lesson there. But the rest of the lesson from Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday comes under our third talking point, which is we okay, must 16. proclaim the truth. Now. To give a very brief overview of these three days, Tuesday talked about the universal appeal, how when how the, the whole world is going to be drawn when they see the righteousness of Christ, when they see who Christ is, and there's, there's going to be an appeal to that. But they see it in us, and this is the thing, you know, uh, Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness of people, but the Lord will rise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. You know, the glory has to do with the character. Yes. And that goes right in line with the things we're talking about. Right. As we're living out, as Christ is living out his life in us, the Bible says there's coming a time where the, the, the Gentile nations will see those people we've been trying to get Bible studies with and we've been knocking on their, not interested mm. in under, they're going to be coming and knocking on our doors. Mm. They say, man, we see the glory of the Lord upon you. Beautiful. But that's not going to happen as we're like, oh, it doesn't matter how we live, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's so going to be a distinction a, drawn. This is They're a good follow-through to what we've been talking about. Well, and in the talking point, I bring out this. The purpose of God's people has always been to lighten the world with a message of Christ's righteousness. Yes. This is not just an end-time thing. This is what he wanted even from Old Testament times. You think of Genesis chapter 12 where Abram was called, uh, and all nations will be blessed through you, right? Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we saw earlier in our studies how the, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, right? And in the Christian church, even after Christ came, and I'd say especially after Christ came, right? Now that mission has been accomplished through his death on the cross and he's gone back up to continue his work in heaven, we have a work here on earth. It's called the Great Commission, right? Yes. You go and give the gospel to all the world. And just as Israel, ancient Israel, had the unique message of the first coming of Jesus, right? That the, the sacrifice of the lamb, the antitypical lamb was going to come and John could say, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Praise the Lord that that was the message they had then, and it is still true today that Jesus did all of those things. Mm -hmm. But we are not living in the time of the soon coming lamb. We're living in the time of the soon coming king, yes. right? And so the, the same Jesus who was born and lived and died, the mission he had to do there on earth, is now ascended into heaven and intercedes at the right hand of God, and even more than that is now the high priest in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. So if we go out and preach a message of Christ without talking about what Christ is presently doing, what we call present truth, then we have 
we have neglected our duty. We are, we are omitting well, something Well, also, critical. what he's presently doing is manifested in the lives of believers. So you see the light shining on, on us, his glory rising on us in chapter 60. Chapter 61 is that famous passage that outlines the ministry of Christ. Yes. And so you see the connection, like what we're seeing in 61, Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Well, what kind of good works? We see them outlined in the 61. Same Jesus did. And that same glory will be seen in us in 60. So you see the merging of those two themes. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Now, the reason I bring up this judgment, judgment thing idea. is because the lesson goes there. And, yes. and, the, and the reason the lesson goes there Very is because scripture goes there, right? Because after chapter 61, right? Yes. We have, uh, well, in fact, in the chapter 61. Yeah. For those who are familiar, when Jesus goes to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, he stands up and reads scripture, and he quotes from what we know as Isaiah chapter 61. And applies it to himself. And he applies it to himself. In fact, he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, right? But what he preached, what he read that day, started with verse 1, and it ended halfway through verse 2. That's right. right? After it talks about the preaching, the good news, and the liberty of the captives, right? He left a piece out. Yes. it's it, He ended with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which, of course, Jesus you know, came at the fullness of time and there's a time for this ministry and, and, and all the things that he did and he fulfilled it in that time. Right. But what he came here on earth to do is not all of well, Isaiah 61. Right. The part he left out is the day of vengeance of our God and that day had not come yet. Exactly. But there is that a day is when, the, in fact, the gospel message, and I sometimes get uh, bothered when we talk about now, we do have this judgment measure, but we mustn't forget the gospel. Yeah, right. We always got to preach the gospel before we preach the judgment. Like they're As separate. though those are two different ideas, right? Not so in Scripture. And not so in Scripture. Now, it's true that, for instance, in, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, he said, now the main point of what we're saying is we do have a high priest, present right. tense, right? And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, would talk about how Jesus was, is seated at the right hand of God, present tense. So their present truth was that Christ had ascended into heaven to do his priestly work in the heavenly sanctuary. Right. But that same Paul would also go on to say, looking forward to a judgment. Yes. In fact, Romans chapter uh, 2, Right. listen to this passage, Romans chapter 2, verse 16. When the Apostle Paul gives his gospel message, he includes the idea of judgment, right? It says here, In the day when God will judge, future tense, the secrets of men, by Jesus Christ, so clearly there's a Christ judgment according according to my gospel right so when he preached the gospel he was looking forward to a judgment the only difference That's between right. the gospel that he preached and the gospel we preach is the same gospel in fact you see it in revelation chapter 14 right revelation chapter 14 verse 6 right the gospel is going to the whole world right. saying the hour of his judgment has come That's or right. is come so it's the same gospel but we have the added element of the uniqueness of time that's in which right. we're living. We're living in a judgment yeah, hour. judgment has come. And so if we go out and preach this light of the glory of Christ and talk about everything he did do, we still haven't preached the whole message That's of right. Jesus because he's still alive doing something now. That's exactly right. So I wanted to make sure that we close this one when we talk about Christ. And that something Christ. he's doing right now is preparing the way for that glory to be revealed in Amen. us and wrap up the great controversy. Amen. And so the question that was asked in the bottom of the lesson on page, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, on Tuesday's lesson at the bottom, in this context, how do you understand the role of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Mm. And my mind flashed back to when Paul was talking about, like, well, what's the point of Jews at all now if we just all right. in Jesus? He was like, well, they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. They have a special right. message, right? 
And the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not special because we're inherently better or we're peculiar just for the sake of peculiarity. The uniqueness of Adventism is this most precious in-time present truth message. That's right. And we've been, you know, I have this statement there at the bottom. You want to read it from Christian Service, yeah, Christian page 147. Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people separate from the world. By the great cleaver of truth, he has cut them out from the quarry of the world, love that language, mm. and brought them into connection with himself. He has made them his representatives and has called them to be ambassadors for him in the last work of salvation. Mm. The greatest wealth of truth ever entrusted to mortals, the most solemn and fearful warnings ever sent by God to man have been committed to them to be given to the world. Praise the Lord. So state. yes, we want to look at the glory of Christ and we want to reflect it in ourselves, but not just in a passive kind of way. We want to be faithful way. to our trust. Right. We want to heavens. be faithful and we want to be useful until Jesus comes. We must proclaim the truth. Amen. Amen. Oh, that's a lot to cover, and there's going to be a lot of good, got a lot of good local Sabbath school classes for this week, and so we want to close with a benediction, asking the Lord's blessing. Pastor Howard, do you want to do that for us? Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the testimony of your word. I do pray for our Sabbath schools that we would um, find our foundation in your word, and that that the word of God would be proclaimed in our Sabbath schools above anything else that we do and would prepare us and strengthen us for the times ahead. May we bear the glory of God as it shines upon your people, that the nations would be drawn to the glory of that rising. We ask and pray for your continued prosperity for your church. Um, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to hasten the day of Jesus' coming. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.